Let's go to God in prayer. Father, there's a great beauty to the text that we study this day as we again see the gospel and things that would protect our souls. And I would ask you that today you would move in our lives to uh, shape us as you want us to, to be. Help us to think and believe the way you want us to think and believe. That we might magnify you, that we might honor you, that we might do your will. God, be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When someone shouts, watch out, we pay attention. Because we know if we're not careful, well, we could get hurt. And here in Paul's letter to the Colossian church, we see him give a warning. Paul cares about these people. He knows that there's something they need to be aware of. And so he shouts to the Colossians here in this passage, watch out. What we need to remember is, though we are reading and studying a letter from nearly 2,000 years ago, We're also reading and studying the inspired word of God this morning. The Lord who made us wants us to hear these words today. The Lord who inspired Paul to warn a first century church offers you and me the same caution today. So let's look at it and find how we can guard our souls with the gospel. Now, if you are a note taker type person, this is a little different shape. There's two main points But the second point, which covers most of what we'll study today, will have five little sub-points, A through E, under it. So if you want to make an outline, it's one and two and then A, B, C, D, E below it. But whether you're a note-taker or not, follow along and let's watch and see how this passage is going to call us to let the gospel guard our hearts and our souls in Christ. Our first big point that we're going to study, it comes right away, is this, guard against man-centered philosophy. Guard against man-centered philosophy in Colossians 2, verse 8. It begins, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So we begin right here with the warning, watch out. That's what God's saying here in verse 8. That that see to it is a Greek word that really means look out. Watch out because there's a danger you're facing. Watch out because there are man-centered philosophies around you that would do you harm. Now earlier in this letter, Paul had told the people of Colossae that they had been rescued by Jesus Christ. But before that, they lived in the kingdom of darkness. But God had picked them up and he had transferred their citizenship to his kingdom. And he made them part of his family. Here, Paul says to them, be really careful, folks. Be really careful not to be recaptured by worldly thinking. Paul warns that we not allow ourselves to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy just means a system of thought. And you've all got a philosophy. Everybody's got philosophy because you think in a certain way. Paul's not opposed to philosophical thinking, but what he's opposed to is empty and deceitful thinking. Folks, there are lies out there. There are bad systems of thinking and believing out there. And what God is saying is he does not want his believers, his followers, to fall prey to such systems of thinking. And right away, we've got something to learn. The way that you allow yourself to think 
matters. What you believe is significant. What you believe, in fact, has everything to do with whether or not you're a child of God. What you believe impacts your eternity. So, you and I need to be sure in our thinking, that that our thinking, that our minds, that our belief systems reflect the truth of God. And we want to see it be different than the three things we see at the end of verse 8. Here, we identify the kinds of dangerous thoughts that are out there, the kinds of dangerous philosophies we need to avoid. And they are three things all within according to in them. And again, depending on your translation, these are going to be translated. They're going to sound a little different. I'm using the English Standard Version here, which says, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Those are three ways of thinking you want to avoid. So the first one, according to human tradition, and the point here is, just because lots of people say it, and just because lots of people think it, does not make it true. False thinking can be passed down from one generation to the next. You've heard these stories, right, of how, of how a thought goes from one generation to the next without anybody ever thinking about it again. Have you ever heard the story of the, of the woman who uh, she got married and she moved into her home with her husband and, and she started to make a roast and she cut the ends off of the roast before she put it in the oven? And her new husband said, why are you doing that? And she said, that's just the way you make a roast. And he said, are you sure? Because I've never seen one done like that. And she goes, oh, yeah, you cut both ends off. That's what my mom always did. And so he said, well, why? And so she calls her mom and she says, mom, why do you do that? And she goes, I don't know. My mom always did that. And so they call grandma up and they say, grandma, why, why, when you made a roast, did you cut the ends off of it? She goes, oh, that's because my roast pan was too small. And so I had to cut the ends off to make it fit. (laughs) You know, sometimes just because something gets passed down from one generation to the next doesn't make it a good idea. The point, though, is God commands you and me to be careful. And don't let yourself fall victim to thinking and ideas and and things that would dishonor God. Even if everybody around you thinks it. Even if the news media loves it. Even if society champions it. Even if thinking this way makes people say that you have become on the right side of history. If it doesn't follow the thinking that God has put forward, it's not thinking we want. But the other kind of false thinking that Paul says to watch out for is thinking that is, again, in the ESV, according to the elemental spirits of the world, or I think NIV says according to elementary principles of the world. Very different sounding things. And the reason that sounds so different in two translations is because it is a very different, difficult phrase to translate. It could be making reference to a person giving into nature worship. The, the, the elemental spirits could be the, the, the elements worshiping gods of earth and wind and fire and water or maybe even people bowing down to the sun and the moon and the stars or people giving in to thinking that astrology affects their lives and the position of the stars and the position of the planets has some, has some communicative truth. This was a popular kind of thinking in the old days, right? But what we want to be sure is that we need to not give in to any temptation that says that God is in nature. 
Okay, God is not in nature flowing through it. God is not like the force that Yoda said, you know, it's in this tree and it's in this rock and it flows through us all. You know, that, that, that's not God. And so we want to get, be very careful not to give in to thinking like that, which is pretty popular these days in any form of pantheism or panentheism. But there's more than just saying, I'm not going to buy into worshiping the things I can see. Another way to understand this idea of elemental spirits or elementary principles is to, is to say that it could indicate elementary thinking. Just as, as the elements are the building blocks of nature, elementary thinking are the ABCs and the one, two, threes of how people think. And what this passage is telling us is there are some people who, are, who will give in to the temptation to let go of the revealed truth of God and to go back to childish ideas of how to please God. See, the Colossians and many other people in the world face the temptation to come up with man-made religious ideas of how to go to heaven. Have you ever heard anybody who says that they think that the way you end up having a good afterlife is to be good in this life? That's childish, man-centered thinking. That's not what God revealed. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if my good deeds outweigh my bad, then I'll go to heaven when I die. Or if I'm at least not as bad as Hitler, I'll go to heaven when I die. That's elementary thinking. And that's not the way God designed us. Or some people think, well, I have to go through this ritual or that ritual or go through this practice or that practice to be good with God. That's elementary thinking. God says, don't give in to that. That's the way anybody who looks at the world thinks, but it's not enough. It's not God's way. Paul says, we must not be led captive by thinking that is, quote, not according to Christ. So all that stuff that I just said actually isn't as complicated as it sounds. There's a way to think and believe that is according to Jesus, and there are billions of other ways to think that are not according to Jesus. We want to have our minds and our attitudes and our philosophies and our belief systems shaped by Jesus, guarded by the gospel, guarded by Christ's message, guarded by the word of God, guarded by the good news. So what we learn is the warning that comes, watch out, because around us are man-made and man-centered ways of thinking, man-made philosophies, and we're going to be naturally given to thinking that we can figure these things out. We're going to think we understand the universe. We're going to think that we can figure out who God is or how he should act or what he should want. And man, if you watch the way people write these days, you will see that there's a lot of people that say, well, I know God would never want this. But they only base it on their own thoughts. God tells us to be really, really careful. Because your brain and my brain are not sufficient to figure out what God would do. We'll mess that up every time. We need to guard ourselves so as not to allow ourselves to think we know truth because a lot of people out there say it. We need to be sure that we don't let ourselves be led astray by thinking that focuses us on the universe that we can see or the basic and childish ideas of the world. We dare not follow the theme of every little Disney movie out there that says just follow your heart to your own truth and morality. Instead, our thinking is to be according to Christ. And folks, can I tell you, the only way you're going to get there is if you learn it from the written word of God. That's the only way you're going to let your thinking be shaped by Christ. So there's the warning. And that the warning really is the introduction. Okay? The warning is the introduction to this passage. 
How do we do it? How do we guard against those dangerous false philosophies? What do we do? There was a seminary professor of mine who once gave me what I think is still great advice. He told us, when somebody says something false, don't spend all your time preaching against what was wrong with what the other person said. Instead, when you hear something false, be sure that you preach the truth better. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do. He gives us one verse warning us not to buy into worldly thinking. And now he's going to use all the way from 9 to 15 to show us right thinking. The superior gospel of Jesus. And so let's look at what's going to be point two, which is actually the whole sermon. Point two is embrace the gospel of Christ. Embrace it. Cling to the gospel, however you want to write this. We're going to look at what Paul tells us in the following verses and find five ways in which the gospel of Jesus Christ is superior to every single man-made philosophy out there. And in doing it, we will guard against being taken captive by false thinking. So here we go. The five actual points of the message begins with sub-point A, if you're a note-taker. Doesn't this all sound nerdy when I say sub-point A? I feel nerdy when I say it. Here it is, already. Jesus is God. Look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That's only half a sentence. But it may be the most significant truth that any person could ever hear anywhere at any time. If this phrase is true, it shatters every other system of thinking and philosophy. If you get this, if this sinks down deep into your soul, it'll change you from the inside out forever. What is the truth I just said? Jesus is God. Verse 8, turn your thinking toward Jesus, says Christ, and Paul says here about Christ, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, throughout the book of Colossians, we have seen reference after reference to fullness or completeness. Being made full or being made complete. And likely there were some people around the people in Colossae who were, who were confusing the people while they were talking about fullness. They were like, guys, there are secrets that you don't yet know. That if I tell you them, I feel like it's one of those telemarketers. If you'll just send in 1995 for my book. I will tell you the secret of the full spiritual life. I will tell you how to achieve fullness. You can picture them talking about how they know the secrets of the ins and outs of the angels and the demons and the spirit beings that that have to be blocked or that have to be subdued in order for you to make your way up into the full spiritual realm, right? I'll tell you how to overcome the little sub-gods and the little sub-deities and the little mini-gods and I'll tell you how to get really right up there with the real big god. By the way, doesn't that sound like that book would sell today? Because it would. You could, you could make a mint on that book. But Paul takes all that thinking and just shoves it aside with one phrase. In Jesus, 
All the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Jesus, we find full God, full deity. Jesus is fully God. He's not some sub-God. He's not some mini-God. He's not little Godling. He is not a creation of the big God. No, the Bible tells us that Jesus is God who came down to earth and put on flesh to accomplish the will of God. And guys... That's different than what a lot of philosophies are out there, including the Mormon church, including Jehovah's Witnesses, including almost any other, even Islam. They miss who Jesus is. This changes everything. Now, what changes? What changes if you see that Jesus is God? Everything changes if you see Jesus as God. If Jesus is God, then everything he says is true. If Jesus is God, everything he commands is something we're supposed to obey. If Jesus is God, then everything he claims to have accomplished is accomplished. If Jesus is God, he is our way, our only way to be forgiven and to live forever. Do you get, do you believe that Jesus is God? If you do, it will reshape your mind. The standard of right and wrong is not what the people on CNN like. The standard of right and wrong is not what the people in the university say is moral these days. The standard of right and wrong is Jesus and what Jesus claims. The world, the media, the government, none of it has the right to shape for you who God is or what God commands. Instead, Jesus is the only one who has that right because he's God. If Jesus is God, every other philosophy out there that claims another source of authority other than the Bible is false. So this is a big deal. Now, what if you're here and you say, I'm not so sure about Paul claiming Jesus is God. That just seems like a bit much. Listen to me carefully. You have only a couple of options. As C.S. Lewis challenged us years ago, here are your choices. Here's what you get to pick. Either Jesus is crazy. I mean, completely insane. Lewis said he's on the level of a man who claims to be a poached egg. Does, I mean, does anybody really think Jesus was just a nutter? Not really. Or you can choose to believe Jesus is evil. If he's not crazy and he claimed to be God he's, and he's not God, he's evil. I mean, C.S. Lewis again said, like the devil of hell himself. If Jesus is not nuts and if Jesus is not evil, then he has to be the very God that he and his followers claim that he is. Those are your choices. Jesus cannot simply be a big figure from history. He can't just be a good moral teacher. Either he is God or he's somebody we completely reject in pity or scorn. Neither Jesus nor his disciples leave us with any other logical option. In Jesus dwells the fullness of deity bodily. He is God who walked the earth. And you and I have the responsibility and the obligation and the privilege to worship him and to obey him. 
And that will protect your soul if you get it. B. Subpoint B. Not only is Jesus God, Jesus fills believers. Jesus fills believers. Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So remember, Paul has been calling us to guard our hearts and our minds from dangerous philosophy. He told us Jesus is fully God. Now he tells us that we, if we are genuinely believers in Christ, have been filled in him. If the false philosophies were trying to get people to perform religious rituals or to seek spiritual experiences to find that mystical fullness, the next level, Paul says that is absolutely silly because if you have Jesus, fully God, you have been fully filled. If you have Jesus, the one who is God in flesh, he grants you his His spirit to live in you and fill you spiritually. There is no more fullness to Seek. There is no mystical next level to go to. If you have Jesus, you have been and are being completed by God. And Jesus who fills us is the head of all rule and authority. This shows us that it makes no sense at all to seek out some other sort of spiritual power. There's no spiritual force out there that exists over which Jesus is not superior. Jesus is above everything, like we sang. It makes no sense to, to think, I'm going to get spiritually stronger or spiritually full by seeking to satisfy or praying to some other kind of being out there. We do not fascinate ourselves with angels. We don't fascinate ourselves with saints of the past. We don't fascinate ourselves with any other deep, secret, spiritual knowledge. We seek Jesus Christ, who is above all other spiritual forces anyway. Christ has all the fullness. He has all the authority. He's the one we seek. He's the one we need. And if we've been rescued by Jesus, if you've asked Jesus to rescue your soul, then you have him. So guard yourself from false philosophies by embracing the gospel truth that Jesus is God who fills believers. C. Jesus fulfills all righteousness for believers. Jesus fulfills all righteousness for believers. 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we get to look at the gospel from a different angle. Paul showed us earlier, Jesus is God who fills us. He's above all spiritual beings or forces or ideas out there. But now he's going to turn his attention to not just out there philosophy, but he's going to turn his attention to religion and religious concepts. We want to be sure that we don't think for any moment that we need Jesus plus extra religious things to experience completeness or fullness. There is no such thing as a Jesus and religion that comes from God. Now, Paul brings up here in verses 11 and 12 the concepts of circumcision, verse 11, and baptism in verse 12. And there is obviously a sense in which these two things are connected. The the, the practices are related. But exactly how they relate to each other, well, that's a major point of discussion. 
And in fact, it's a pretty big point of division among Christians and denominations who look at these things differently. That is a very important discussion, but it's not the thrust behind this passage. So we're going to leave it aside for now. Maybe we can talk about it in another time. Maybe we can talk about it in a Bible study. Um, how you believe circumcision and baptism are connected actually ends up determining what you believe about infant baptism. It's a big deal. But that's not what Paul's after here. So let's not spend a lot of time in that can of worms. Back in the Old Testament, here's what we know. God chose the nation of Israel to be his chosen people. The Israelites were to be a nation that followed his laws. They were to be a nation that demonstrated his character to the world. Of course, God knew they were going to rebel against him. And so they also became a reminder to the world that humanity needs to be rescued by God because we don't follow God's rules. See, none of us has ever been good enough to obey the perfect standard God gives us. None of us. We're not as good as God. And so we need to be forgiven by God. We need to be perfected by God. We need to be rescued by God. Israel shows the world that. And Israel's the nation through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came. God's rescuer came out of this chosen nation. Now, part of being a man who was part of Israel was to be marked by physical circumcision. The people born into the nation were circumcised as children. And those who entered the nation from outside, from other nations, had to be circumcised in order to express their commitment to become Israelites and to follow the law of God. If you wanted to be in the community, you had to let this part of flesh be removed from you as a physical marker to say, I'm committed to this community. Now, Thankfully, we don't have to get deep into the nuts and bolts of this issue. How does it work? Whatever. Because Paul is talking here about a spiritual, not a physical, circumcision. You see, another thing that came in the Old Testament was God's promise that those who were truly his were not those who had physical marks made on their body, but those who had been spiritually circumcised, spiritually changed, spiritually marked by God. And Paul picks up that spiritual theme and he says that those who are really God's children are those who have had their old lives cut away from them, not by human hands, but by God who spiritually changed their hearts. See, the moment God rescues a person from their sins, their old life dies. And when our old life dies, our old ways of thinking and living are cut away. They're removed. Now, that's, by the way, what Paul says when he talks about the body of flesh being cut away by God. And that cutting away of our old lives, that spiritual change of our hearts, that's what God says marks us as belonging to Christ. Now, by the way, doesn't that make you think, man, it doesn't look like mine's cut that far away yet? But it's true. You're going to be different if you're a child of God. You're just going to be. But... To bring in another spiritual picture, Paul moves from spiritual circumcision to spiritual baptism. We were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to life in him. Now, like circumcision, baptism is a ceremony that marks the life of a believer in Christ. When a person experiences a change from being outside the family of God to being a genuine child of God, they wear a mark of that change. 
And rather than it being Old Testament circumcision, which was about the nation of Israel and about the Old Testament law, we're baptized in an effort to reflect what Jesus has done. In baptism, we take a person and we lower them down into the water, which symbolizes Jesus dying on their behalf and symbolizes them dying to their old self. Then we raise them up out of the water, symbolizing Jesus' resurrection and the new believer's new life in Christ. And I was asked before, how long do you hold them under? And I would tell people, we hold them under until they say tithe. But that's not true. <laughs> I also heard another guy say, it's from the Greek word baptizo. It means put under till you bubble. But uh, no, 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 none of those are the whole point is, buried, looks like Jesus being buried, looks like your old life dying, raised to life, looks like Jesus coming out of the grave, looks like a new person living in place of the old. That's what baptism is about. But again, Paul's not here talking and arguing about water baptism and, and the physical side of this, any more than he was talking about physical circumcision a moment ago. He is instead talking about something else that baptism means, which is being identified with or united with something. Because again, when you get dipped into water, you're totally united with, identified with the water, right? Or if, if, if someone's taking a piece of fabric and dyeing it, when they dip it into the dye, they're trying to identify the fabric with the dye. That's what's being talked about here. We're talking about the unity and the identification that believers have with Christ. We were, and I get this, if you're a Christian, and a lot of this I'm going to keep saying, if you're a believer, you're a believer, you were actually buried with Christ. You are included in what Jesus did. When we come to Christ, God spiritually baptizes us into Jesus. He marks us as being fully united with the person and the perfect work of Christ. And we are made alive, brand new with Christ. How were we baptized with Jesus, you ask? How were we circumcised with Jesus? How were we raised to life in Jesus? It has nothing to do with any single religious ritual whatsoever. It has everything to do with faith. Paul says in verse 12, This is all through faith in God who powerfully worked to raise Jesus from the dead. It is belief. It is genuine, life-changing trust in who God is and what God has done through Christ that is the vehicle for our new life. Now, does this all sound weird to you? I mean, this is not a normal conversation. We don't sit around talking about circumcision. We don't sit around talking about baptism that often. So for us to see these as physical illustrations of bigger spiritual truths may feel unfamiliar, maybe even uncomfortable. But will you see what God is showing us here? Please, this is beautiful. If you come to faith in Jesus... If you've been rescued by Jesus, God counts it as if you are genuinely united with the complete work of Christ. You know what? There used to be laws people had to obey to be part of the nation. There used to be things people had to go through to be part of God's people. Rituals, right? There used to be laws about things like circumcision. Righteous things you had to perfectly fulfill if you wanted to be one of the children of God. And God knew that none of us would perfectly fulfill the rules he gives us. That's why, here's the cool part, Jesus did it for us. 
Jesus fulfills all the righteous laws on our behalf. We are welcomed into God's family, not because we're physically changed, not because we're physically marked, not because we're physically baptized, not because we do religious good deeds. We are welcomed because we place our hope in and our trust in Jesus Christ who did all the stuff we could never have done on our own. Now, how does that guard your thinking? There are people out there who are convinced that it's through religious practices and rituals that we become children of God. But God wants us to know it's through faith in Jesus and what Jesus has accomplished that we actually become children of God. So guard yourself from thinking that any outward ritual, any religious practice, Any obedience to any rule is how you get into heaven. You can't get to heaven that way. You go through faith in Christ. D, fourth subpoint. Jesus pays the spiritual debt of believers. Verse 13 and 14. And you, kind of reviewing here, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, there's still another way to look at the gospel to guard your mind and guard your soul from philosophies. We just saw how God unites us with Jesus and he unites us with Jesus' perfect obedience to the law. But now we're going to see the flip side of the coin. See, the Bible tells us that we used to be dead in our sins. Every person other than Jesus who has ever lived has sinned before God and is spiritually or has been spiritually dead. This means that we were opposed to God. We were unable to do anything to please God. We were unable to help ourselves before God, and we sinned against God, earning the judgment of God against ourselves. So see the beautiful picture in these verses. We used to be dead in our, again, uncircumcision, our being unmarked as a child of God. We used to be dead like that in our disobedience to God, but God made us alive together with Christ. Now we know this happened on our part by God's grace through our faith, which is a faith that God gave to us as a gift, which we see in Ephesians 2 verse 8. But now we see another aspect of how did we come to life with Jesus? And it has everything to do with Jesus paying our debt. See, if you're in Christ, God has forgiven you all your trespasses. What's a trespass? Well, I mean, when I was growing up, there would be, there would be people who had signs on their, on their fields, like on their, on, their, on their pastures. They didn't want you back there. They put a sign that says no trespassing. It means, I've told you, you can't walk here. Right? Every time your life has walked somewhere God told it not to walk, that's a trespass. Every time you thought something you shouldn't have thought, said something you shouldn't have said, done something you shouldn't have done, or refused to do something right you should have done, you trespassed. Now, if you are a Christian, God has forgiven them all. All of your trespasses from yesterday, all of your trespasses from today, And all of your trespasses from tomorrow were forgiven by God in a single moment through the finished cross work of Jesus. 
What did God do for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus for salvation? God canceled our record of debt. The illustration here is that there's a handwritten IOU. Imagine if you had to write out and sign your name to all the debt that you owe God for all of your disobedience to God. By the way, that's a big piece of paper. On one piece of paper, you've got to say to God, I have failed to follow your law. I have failed to do what's right. I have chosen to do what was wrong. And I owe you the proper payment for offending your perfection. Can I ask you, church, how big of a debt do you think you would owe? It's as big a debt as God is good. Do you get that? The debt you would owe God is as big as God is perfect. You know how big that is? That is an infinitely, never-endingly big debt. Because God is infinitely, never-endingly perfect. He's holy. So what did God do? He took that paper that records in your own handwriting that you owe him an infinite debt and he wiped it clean. How? He nailed it to the cross. God took your debt, your record of your sin, of what you owe Him for your guilt, and He nailed that to the cross and cleaned it off. He looked at the price you owe Him, the infinite punishment you deserve, and He punished Jesus in your place. As the infinitely perfect Son of God was hanging on the cross, He paid the infinite debt that you owe for your sin. The one in whom all the fullness of deity was present bodily paid the infinite debt that people like you and I owe in order that God could both be just and still forgive the ones He chooses to rescue. You see, we guard our minds from false philosophy and false thinking, when we remember and we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Or even the old chorus, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt. I could not pay. Subpoint E, last one. Jesus is above all spiritual forces. Verse 15. He, this is God, that he is God, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So just in case you're tempted to believe that once you're saved, you still need the help of angels or you have to know the names of demons and personally defeat them for you to be a full and complete child of God, Paul reminds us that when Jesus died and rose again, he completely and totally defeated every spiritual force that opposes God. The illustration here is one of a victorious Roman general. Because when a general would win a great victory, the Romans would give him what they called a triumph. 
The triumph was like a victory parade. He would come back home and the victorious force would march through the city and the people would shout and they would wave, you know, banners and branches and they would throw flowers at them and all whatever else they would do. But following the victors would be the conquered. Leaders of the enemy would be stripped of their signs of rank and stripped of their authority and stripped of their royal robes. And they would be paraded through the streets in chains, humiliated, to demonstrate how utterly Rome had conquered them. But you see, when Jesus rose from the dead after perfectly completing all the righteousness for all those God would rescue, and after perfectly paying the penalty for all the sin of all those God would rescue, Jesus humiliated the devil and every spiritual force out there by demonstrating that he had completely conquered them, that they have no power to do anything that God doesn't just allow them to do, and that they will ultimately be eternally defeated. That's what Jesus did when he rose from the grave and when he ascended back to heaven. Paul tells us this and he draws one last picture here to help us to see that we don't need to let anybody lead us into some sort of weird spiritual mysticism. Jesus is God. Jesus has already conquered the spiritual forces. We don't need to curry the favor of any spiritual being of any sort because what we need is Jesus. And so this whole passage, this whole passage has been a warning. Watch out for false thinking. How do you survive? You embrace the superior gospel of Jesus. It's bigger and better than any false thinking out there. Jesus is God. You you don't need something better than Him. He's it. And Jesus fills believers. You don't need to seek some filling from something else. But you might say, oh, Travis, it's... I don't feel full. I don't feel filled. I still sin. I still fail. Guys, that's the already and the not yet of the season we live in. Is Jesus victorious? Yes. Is Jesus going to come back and win the victory? Yes. Are you totally forgiven? Yes. Is he still forgiving you? Yes. Is Jesus ruling? Yes. Is Jesus going to return to rule? Yes. It's already. It's not yet. It's the tension. Am I, am, am I sanctified? Yes. Am I being sanctified? Yes. But I can tell you this, there's going to come a day when he's going to make us all perfect in him. He fills us. We don't get that feeling from anybody else. Jesus fulfills all the righteousness for believers. There's no, there's no rule you have to keep to get into heaven. You just trust Jesus. He did every right thing that you never did. Jesus pays the spiritual debt of believers. There's nothing you have to do to make up for your sin. Jesus paid the full price for all of your sin if you're in him. And Jesus is above all spiritual forces. So don't you dare find yourself bowing down to or seeking the approval of some other spiritual being. Seeing those things helps you turn away from worldly thinking and rest your hope completely in the perfect Son of God. And if you're here this morning and you haven't come to Jesus to be rescued by him, let me tell you, don't give in to thinking that takes you away from Jesus. Trust in him. He's God in flesh. Ask him to be your leader, your Lord, your master. Ask him to be, tell him that you know he's your only hope to be forgiven. Come to him. Ask him for mercy. Trust that he paid your debt on the cross and turn your life over to him. Know that he's alive today. Know that he's coming back. Embrace the gospel of Jesus. And find him the only Savior. Let's pray together.
Father, as we bow, we need you. You are worthy. We are not. And I thank you for the gospel that you've unfolded for us here today. I pray that you will encourage our hearts and fill our souls with your goodness. Because we put our hope completely in you and love, and you and you alone. If anybody here needs to come trust in you, help us to do that before the day's out. If we need to obey you by wearing the outward mark of baptism because we put our faith in you, help us to do it. God, be glorified and do your will in your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing Christ's praise.